All right. Well, we're in week three of our four-week sermon series on love, sex, dating, marriage, engagement, and all that jazz. In week one, if you guys remember, we, we tried to set up the framework for where we were going to go. Um, in fact, in week zero, we did a standalone series on community that sets up the basic framework for how we understand relationships here at First Orlando, and it's called the theory of the couch. We believe that everybody is probably somewhere sitting in a chair, and they're all by themselves, and the way they relate with God is all by themselves, just me and Jesus, right? And it can be very meaningful, but it's very lonely because there are no other believers to help encourage us and love us and spur us on. And so the first step we take towards community is when we step out of the chair onto the couch. Remember when you get on the couch, now you have to start negotiating with people. You got to worry about elbow space. Do I sit in the middle? Do I sit on the right, the left? What if I'm left-handed and I sit on the right side? I've got to hold my cup on this arm here. Oh no, right, first world problems. But you're, you're on the couch, you're negotiating, you're now in community. This is what we call life groups, right? You're on the couch, we make space on the couch for everybody in our life group system. It's the first layer of community. The next step in is to get around the table, right? Your table fellowship. And for us, this looks like discipleship groups in our community model. It's going deeper. Uh, you guys know the, the, the phrase here. Sometimes you'll hear uh, politicians or other intellectuals talk about this. They say, uh, hey, we need to table that for now, right? Or, hey, something needs to be discussed. Well, let's put it on the table, right? Uh, when you get to the table, that's where you discuss real things. And it's a deeper layer of community. Well, while these are some pretty significant layers of community, the deepest layer of community, if you guys remember, is the bed, because nothing can be hidden in the bed. If you have the flu, you're not fooling anyone in the bed, right? And marriage, for us, becomes this very deep picture of community. Marriage is this radical community, and for those of us who are already in community and who are friends and who are single, the only reason we learned that would move us, uh, the only motivating reason to move out of singleness uh, into marriage is because we want to be in this radical form of community with someone of the opposite gender, right? That's where we've been so far. Remember we said this is the framework, and week one we learned that singleness is the biblical norm, okay? Jesus was single all of his life. The normative discipleship lifestyle is singleness. Everyone's born single. They will die single. Uh, In heaven you will be single, right? Or at least you won't be married and given in marriage, And so singleness is something we should embrace and be content with because it's what God wants for most of us, right? And in fact, it's what he wants for all of us at some point in our life. And so last week we looked at what motivates us to step out of singleness into the table where we're now dating and thinking through things. Uh, And we we talked about a lot of reasons uh, for that. And we talked about what healthy dating looks like. We'll review that a little bit more here in the notes. Today, here's what is really important with this framework in mind. We're now asking a new question and it's this. I've been dating him, I've been dating her for a while, okay? How do I know if it's time to either get engaged or how do I know if it's time to break up, right? You get into the dating relationship, it's been a year, you're doing the define the relationship, you're like, should we, shouldn't we, I'm not sure, I I can't tell. Is there something that can help me really think through this question? Because I either need to get engaged or break up and I'm not sure which way I should go And that's what we want to look at today. We want to address that question because the next step for you if you're dating is to be engaged, which is like a little bit more extreme dating. It's somewhere between the table and the bed. And so if you're going to sit in this weird liminal period for any season of time as you're preparing for marriage, uh, you know, you should have some pretty good indications that you're you're taking the right biblical God-honoring steps. So we're going to look at that today. Before we jump in, I'll invite you to pray with me and we'll just ask the Lord to bless our time. Jesus, would you please bring us wisdom from your word as to how we should think about engagement in biblical and or Christian ways. And we ask that you would give us this wisdom for your glory and for the good of your people. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, before we jump into Genesis chapter 24, the whole thing, Uh, I've spent each week of this series talking about my personal story. So just to set the context, uh, I was once a a single adult who I think I was probably not content in my singleness because since I was 10 years old, I just wanted to get married and have kids. And so I I get to college and I I talked to you guys about I started dating, you know, Natalie and Natalie's now my wife and kind of moved in and 
Natalie and I had a really interesting dating life. Um, you, you may remember last week I talked about my dating application. I made every girl who I wanted a date with uh, fill out an application and send it in. We talked about it in kind of a job uh, interview type scenario, um, which had some pluses and minuses, but I ended up with Natalie, so I think I'm the big winner. Anyway, so Natalie and I were dating. Uh, we dated for a year and four months before we got engaged, and we were engaged for a year. And so before we ever got married, we had been together two and a half years. And our dating was very interesting. We started dating February 4th, 2002. I took Natalie to um, Johnny Carino's. Do y'all remember Johnny Carino's? Is that still around? Okay, we got the ravioli. We like exchanged I like yous, right? I like you, I like you too, right? We set up the framework for our dating relationship, physical boundaries, you know, time together, date nights, th- these kind of things. And I remember I just had this really interesting uh, moment. I had, in my research of researching, you know, all these, on this dating experiment that I was on, I kind of discovered this Christian subculture of girls. And one of the things that was really popular in the early 2000s when it came to Christian dating was like Christians don't kiss, right? And there's this book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And so all these girls I talked to and all my guy friends were like, no, you shouldn't kiss until you get married. So I went in to the whole like dating scenario and was like, okay, no kissing until you get married. And I was like, I know what I'm going to do on our first date. I'm going to be like, hey, baby, we're not going to kiss till we get married. And I'm going to like lay it down. And Natalie's just going to be like, oh, you're such a godly man. This is amazing. And I'm going to walk away and be like, yes, I'm awesome. I'm a Christian. I know how to date, right? I just thought this was great. So we go in and we're talking. We're having this great conversation. And I was like, hey, Natalie, as we're setting forth the parameters of our dating relationship, I just don't think we should kiss until we get married. And Natalie looks at me and she goes, hmm, okay, I can respect that, but I'm okay with kissing. And I was like, dang it, dang it, ugh. And as in that moment, I'm, I'm thinking now two days previous, I'm on the couch with my community group, my life group, all my boys, the guys who would be groomsmen at my wedding, guys I'm still friends with. And so I'm sitting down, I'm like, guys, I'm gonna take Natalie on a date and I'm going to tell her that we shouldn't kiss until we get married. And all of them were like, you're an idiot. They were just like, okay, Doug, radical freak, whatever, okay. And I was like, no, guys, you got to hold me accountable. And I'm, I'm just, let's just be real honest here. Because in my group, we practice what we call bloody accountability. I was like, listen, if uh, I come in and confess to you guys that I kiss Natalie, if at any point we're getting physical in the lip region, right, if that happens, you have permission to kick me in the man zone, Right? So I was like, I'm just putting it out there, blood oath, let's take it. And they were like, this is really extreme, but we'll honor this, Doug. Okay, whatever. So now it's two days later, and I tell Natalie this, and she's like, I'm okay with kissing you. And I'm like, dang it. And so now I'm like, okay, I feel like now, since that's not an agreed upon boundary, I'm going to kiss Natalie at some point. And all my life group guys are going to take turns kicking me in the man zone. So I was like, I've got to head this off. So like... Two weeks later, I go to my life group, and I'm like, guys, listen, Nally said it's okay to kiss, and I wasn't real solid on the first place. I just thought this is what you did in Christian subculture. So I, 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 I told him, like, hey, I'd like to start kissing her. And so, you know, we have a gang lifestyle here in this life group. So if you guys need to jump me out, let's go right now. Like, let's go. And they were like, bro, grace. Like, <laughs> at no point did we ever want to kick you in the man zone. We hope you have kids one day. Let's just maybe... <laughs> Cool it down, Doug, you know, you zealot, you know, just kind of calm down. But this is, what, this is the reason I tell you this story. Like, we started dating, we set boundaries, we read all the books, we tried to do everything the right way, we were moving and grooving, and in a month into dating, Natalie broke up with me over spring break, our sophomore year. And I was like, what, why, whatever. And we had some issues we had to deal with, and then after about a week of being broke up, broken up, we got back together, and we dated pretty solid, although there were some ups and downs, for about another year. And then on spring break of our junior year, I broke up with her while we were both leading a mission trip to Mexico. So you can imagine us, we're across the border in Mexico, leading, both of us were on staff leading this trip of about 100 college students. And it's like, Doug and Allie are leading the trip and they're together. Then on like the day three, Doug and Allie are leading the trip and they just broke up. This is awkward. (laughs) Um, They're probably putting the gospel to shame in Spanish. That's happening right now. So anyway, it was awkward, and we were broken up for about another week, and uh, the biggest thing I was struggling with in that whole process was I knew I wanted to marry Natalie, and it scared me, because I was really good at dating, as evidenced by the dating experiment, right? I had figured it all out. 
right? And so I was really scared to give up the dating life and start moving towards that kind of bed type community. I was scared because this was, dating was a really fun game. I liked it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the prospects of all this research going to waste and I can't pass this on to a prodigy. I have no apprentice. Like, I don't know what to do here. And so here's the thing. I go to my college pastor. His name's Kyle. And I'm like, Kyle, what do I do? And I told him, like, I really am going to miss the game. And, but I love Natalie and I don't know what to do. And here's what he said. And it's the best advice anyone ever gave me. He said, Doug, there are much better games ahead. So marriage is a much better game than dating. And so if God's called you to, to get married, go play that game. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. And I was like, dang, that's amazing. That's like, that's like Shakespearean, right? It's just deep and you're like, whoa. He just framed this future for me that just said there's much better things ahead because I'm the child of a divorce and I grew up seeing that marriage was a terrible thing and so I'm about to willingly enter into this marriage thing and I'm like, oh, marriage is in a divorce. This is a terrible thing. And he's the first Christian man who ever said, no, marriage can be a really, really good thing. And so then he said the next thing to me. He said, Doug, if you're serious about Natalie, you need to start dating again and within a month, you need to put a ring on that finger. And you need to commit to it, and you need to get engaged, you need to get married. Stop playing these silly games. And I was like, yes, sir. And it was great for me. I needed that because I just needed someone to tell me that engagement and moving into marriage was okay. That I was at this point where I was ready to move on from dating into engagement and that things were going to be okay. And things have been not just okay, they've been great. Marriage is a much better game than dating, Okay. Now, I think singleness and contentment and singleness is a great game. Don't leave it. Just don't leave it unless God calls you to this life of marriage. But if he calls you to that, dating is, especially dating forever, is, is just not the funnest game out there. Marriage, if you're going to be not single, marriage is the best game out there. And so it, it seems very important for us here today just to reemphasize this point. How do you know when you're dating, like me as a junior in college, how do you know you're ready to kind of step to the next level? And I think Genesis 24 has some very wise things to say to us about this. And, and there's a lot that's going on. So over the next 20 or 30 minutes or so, I want to spend maybe 15 minutes reading through Genesis because while I don't think it's the only text that talks to us about engagement, I think it has some very wise things to teach us about engagement, especially from an ancient source of authority that's many, many cultures away from where we are presently. And so once we get through this, I want to then spend the rest of our time getting very practical about what I think Genesis 24 is saying to us by way of kind of a holistic biblical view on engagement. So let's jump in. Genesis 24, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's not going to be on your screen, so if you have phones or Bibles, go ahead and swipe right on over to Genesis, and let's do this. Genesis 24. Now, Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Okay, if you guys don't know who Abraham is, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, right? Abraham is the first patriarch. He is someone that God called to leave the land of Ur and to go into what would be the promised land and to be a herdsman there, to take a wife named Sarah. He was going to give Abraham children, and then God was going to um, fuel the kingdom through these children. It would later become the church, but it's Israel first and then becomes the church. So Abraham is this central figure in the Old Testament. Abraham's wife has died. Sarah has died. Abraham's old. He's a widower. His son, Isaac, is a young man uh, without a wife. He's a single. And, and Isaac appears to be fairly content as a single man. But Abraham longs for a spouse, for his, a mate, for his son. And so he's well advanced in years. And the Bible tells us, verse 1, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So here's what you need to read in that. Abraham was wealthy. He had possessions. He had stuff. Okay? So there's a wealthy widower father with a son, and he wants his son to get married, right? It's basically the setup for Cinderella, but from the kind of the prince's version, right? He's walking around looking at the duke like, hey, can you go get my, my son a wife? Hey, let's throw a ball, okay? And we'll invite all the maidens of the land, right? This is pretty much the same story. It's just Hebrew, right? Okay, so here we go. Verse two, and Abraham said to his servant, the duke, <laughs> and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, which was a way that they made agreements. And then, yes, um, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, 
See, this is bloody accountability. It's like, if you don't do this, you can, you can kick me in the man region. That's what's happening right there. So, no, that's not really what's happening. Doug is just weird. Okay, I'm, I'm way off base. Verse 3, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. You can choose anybody you want, just not the ugly stepsisters, okay? Anybody else, just not the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but I will go, verse 4, to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from whence you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Don't take him back to Ur. Don't take him among the Canaanites. I don't want them in my family. Take him to my kinsmen who are in my, my family, in my community. That's where I want you to find a wife. Verse 6, Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if a woman is not willing to follow you back, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under his thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, first big principle I want you to understand from Abraham's story here is this. Abraham looked to his community uh, for a daughter-in-law. Abraham looked to his community for confirmation uh, on a daughter-in-law. Okay, so he says, go find my people. Go find the people I know, who I trust, and go find a daughter-in-law from them. Why? Because his community will be able to, to confirm that this is a good person and a good mate for his son. Okay, first big principle, just want you to keep that in mind. Here we go, verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, verse 13, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her, that girl who says that, let her be the one whom you have appointed your servant for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love for my master. Okay, what's going on? Servant goes into the land. And this is what's called, I mean, especially if you're part of that club scene, right? You like going clubbing. This is called the classic post-up, right? Like you walk into the club, you know the ladies will be dancing there, and you just kind of post up in the area, right? This is exactly what's going on, right? You go to the, the watering uh, well, and you know that typically women in this culture, in this community, that's Abraham's community, at some point in the day, probably when it's a little bit cooler, they'll go and they'll get water for the day and they'll get the buckets and they'll take them back to their campsites. That's what happened. You know young ladies are going to be there. That's what young ladies do. You go to where the young ladies are and you post up and you just see which one of them are hospitable, right? And he's saying, hey, let the one who's hospitable be the one for Isaac, okay? He's playing the odds here, right? That's what's going on, okay? Make sure you pick up on that. Also, just take note, we'll look at this later, in verse 10, the servant didn't just go, he took 10 of his master's camels, and he took all sorts of choice gifts from his master. Now, why would he bring che treasure chests with him? Okay, think about that. Just let that hang in the air, see if we can answer it later. Verse 15, moving on. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So this is Abraham's brother's daughter, his niece, okay? And just be cool on the incest kind of conversation right now, okay? Because this is early on. There aren't that many people. Just kind of be cool, okay? It wasn't that creepy, okay? This is not like East Texas where I'm from, and this is common, but this is, this is a whole nother deal, okay? Some of you from Arkansas are like, <laughs> right? I'm from East Texas, which is basically Arkansas, and you're like, hey, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> The young woman was very attractive in appearance, and a maid woman, no man, sorry, I gotta tell you the story. So when Natalie and I got engaged, <laughs> Natalie's from a sophisticated part of the world, Oklahoma. Um, I'm from Texas, you know, Texans, right? So we go to Oklahoma, and I kid you not, when we're registering to get married, the first thing they have us do, you know what it is? 
take a blood test. And I'm like, I'm in this office, I'm like, so you can find out that we're not related? And they're like, no, that's definitely not it. It's because we're uh, uh, checking for infectious diseases. And I was like, yeah, it is. So like, seriously, we had to take a blood test to make sure we weren't related. So uh, verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden woman who no man had known. Verse 16, she's young. Listen, she's young. No man had known her. And know her is in the, the relational sense. No man knew her physically. She was a virgin. She'd never had sexual intercourse with a man. And so no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her head and gave him a drink. And when she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar uh, into the trough uh, trow and ran it uh, to the well to draw water, uh, into the trough and ran it to draw water, uh, uh, draw water. And she drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Uh, I want you guys to stop here and notice something. And here's what it is. Principle number two, provision of needs was a major factor in the engagement process. Provision of needs was a major factor in the engagement process. And you're going to see this in subsequent verses. The servant brings all of these gifts with them. He posts up in the club. He sees the girl come along. Or the Christian equivalent of that is he posts up at Anthem, right? It's the pre-lobby area. And all the, all the girls are like with their tote bags and they're kind of hanging out. And all the guys are like, what's up, Right? Hey, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying that's great. Keep it up, fellas. You just post up. You do your thing, right? Ladies, if you notice the guy's posting up, maybe just be like, hey, right? Just whatever, whatever girls do. That's how I imagine girls flirting back. They just toss their hair, unless you have like a bob, like a short hair, in which case there's something else going on. But anyway, so, but here's the thing. Posting up, he brings the treasure chest. He's trying to find the girl. Here's what you need to know. He, he's thinking hey, I'm not just going to engage this girl. I, I'm not just talking to her just to kind of talk. I'm anticipating, like, the conversation going like this. Hi, oh, are you the one? I'd like to give you all of this stuff, right? And I'd like to give you all this stuff to show you that, uh, that I'm serious about what's going on here. Like, I'm making a commitment to you and your life. Provision of needs is critical. It's crucial uh, in this engagement process. Keep them going. Verse 22. Uh, we're about a third of the way through this, so you power on. Get your Gatorade. We're, we're keep going. Here we go. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to neighbor, uh, Nahor. She said, uh, added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me the way to the house of my master's kinsmen, his community. And then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca's young. This guy comes in. He's got all this loot. He says, Oh my goodness, you're from my master Abraham's household. And he just starts like giving her jewelry, right? And what woman is going to be like, no, I don't want that jewelry, right? They're like, she's like, yeah, give me that jewelry. You know, I love those diamonds. Come on, let's go, right? They're a girl's best friend. Like th there's something flattering. There's something provisional about what's going on here. There's something appealing. As a young girl raised in this culture, she would know if a strange man comes from a, a relative's family and has lots of like goods for you. I mean, he's thinking marriage, like there's something's about to happen. This is like romantic. This is like something's going on here. She's alerted to this and she's happy. And notice her response. She isn't like, thank you, awesome. Can I have more, right? No, she's like, thank you. Hey, we have room for you in our house. Let's make room. Let's be hospitable. Let's, let's move. Let's, 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 let's move this along. This is amazing. She seems receptive to this. Just take note of that. Verse 29, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the, men, uh, towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus, man, the, uh, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the men came to the house, unharnessed the camels, 
and gave straw and fodder to the camels, uh, and there was water to wash his feet. He's getting a pedicure. Um, and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. Okay? Now, where are they at when they're having this conversation? They're in the table, right? There's food out. We want to discuss things. We're in, commu- we're, in deep- we're in deeper community now, right? I want to talk about the deepest level of community. There's food. Let's discuss. <coughs> so here we go. I don't want to eat until I, until I get this off my chest. I have come to tell a story. In, in Broadway, he would just jump into a song right here. I have come to tell a story, right? But that, that's not what happens here. So, so he says this. Uh, The brother says, speak on. So he said, verse 34, he said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He's wealthy um, and has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. Go to my community, go to my tribe, find me a wife for my son there. And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. And in Hebrew culture, you just kind of repeat everything that goes on. So just know this is happening. If you're like, I think I've read this before. You have like 20 verses earlier, but this is how it works. They said to me, the Lord before whom I've walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son to my clan from my father's house. Then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. 42. I came today to the spring and said, Oh, Lord, my God, my master Abraham, if you now prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes and draw water to him, I'll say, please give me a little water for your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And he gets that out. Verse 45, before I'd finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down from her jar her shoulder and she said, drink and I will give you your camel's drink also. So I drank and she gave the camel's drink also. And then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, neighbor's son, who Micah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose, by the way, nose ring, okay? So if any of you guys have like conservative parents who are like, I can't believe you would pierce your nose. It's in the Bible, okay? It's in the Bible, parents. Just saying. And now I'm off. Here we go. Um, nose ring. So I drank, gave the camel's drink also. Verse 47. Then he asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, daughter. Head worship. Put the blood. 48. Yes. And now led me by the right way to take my daughter of my master's kinsman for uh, his son. Verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, Tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, he said, here's my story. This is the girl, I, Abraham. I'm his, I'm his servant. Abraham wants a son for Isaac. This girl came. She, I posted up and she operated according to my fleecing that I put out there. And I'm now at your home and we're eating. We're at the table. We're having discussion in deep community. What do you say, yes or no? Because either way, yes, I get to start a marriage feast. No, I'm free from my oath and I can go, be, go on my way and just get back to my business. What's the deal, right? It's bachelor, bachelorette time right now, okay? It's like, you have the rose. Like, are you giving it to me or not? What's happening here? I gotta know. And here's what happens. In fact, this is so important, we're gonna put this on the screen. I want you to look at this, verse 50. Then, just, just, this is just a different culture, okay? Can I just say this? And just watch how he responds. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you, take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Can you imagine this? In the span of 24 hours, you wake up, you're just like, it's the cool of the day. You're like, oh, I'll go take these buckets and get some water. And then there's a guy there and you're friendly to him and he gives you a whole bunch of loot. And you're like, this is crazy. Why don't you come over to my house? And so you come over to the house and then they go into the kitchen and they come out and brother and dad are like, you can go now, right? You're done here. Thanks for playing. Have a nice life. And you're like, what? What just happened? Oh, yeah, I just, you're now married to this family. Go, right? But that's what happened, right? It was just like, hey, we think this is from the Lord. We think you'd be a good mate. Go. This is the engagement process, okay? This is it. This is the whole thing. Families have come together, and they've said, this seems sufficient enough. Let's move forward. And they just move forward. In the span of 24 hours, this happens. It's bananas, Just take her and go. This is the engagement plan. But, you know, it gets better. Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, 
he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. So he gave her more stuff. What's he trying to communicate here? Is he trying to buy her love? This is so weird. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. So now he's given stuff to the family. This is like an Oprah show, right? You get jewelry and you get jewelry. Everybody's getting some of Abraham's goods, right? Everyone's happy. Verse 54, and then the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. She's planning a wedding, okay? And notice it's the mother who says this, right? Okay, let's look back. Okay, let the young woman remain. So her brother and her mother said this. Yeah, moms always want to plan the wedding. Just know this, right? If you get engaged, this is free advice. If you get engaged, just know it's your wedding, it's your mother's wedding, okay? Ladies, men, it's your wife's wedding. It's your mother-in-law's wedding. Things will just go better with you. I'm just, I'm just telling you now, it's free advice. File it away. This is how it always happens. It has been always. Oh, verse 56. But then he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. This is on the screen too. I just want you to watch. This is Rebecca's response. A postmodern woman might go, Rebecca would go, how dare you treat me like this piece of property, right? You need to give me more than 10 days to plan some kind of wedding. Like, no, I, I went to college, sir, okay? I have a master's degree. I can earn in the marketplace. I, how dare you make these decisions and not consult me? You would think this is what Rebecca would say. No, nope, here's what Rebecca says. Uh, verse 58, and then they called Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. <laughs> so they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant to his man, to his men. Verse 16, they blessed Rebekah, and here's what they said to her. They sing her this song. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So that she's walking away after 24 hours while all she did was just pick up a bucket and go get some water and nice to people, right? And now they're sending her away, and they're like, I hope you're pregnant with a thousand babies, right? Just... Hope you're pregnant for the next 20 years. Blessings on your house. She's like, bye guys. Look at all this stuff. See ya, right? But here's the deal. This isn't even the most important scene because at this point, all we're talking about is just the, the details, the, the politicking, these two families trying to broker a successful marriage. And for us moderns and postmoderns are like, hey, this seems kind of archaic. You've just kind of arranged all this stuff. Isn't there romance that goes on? Oh, yes, there is romance that goes on, right? And we're going to read it in the next few verses. But I don't want you to think that what we've been reading is just kind of this dry narrative. And so the the critical verses for us are right here. It's the meet-cute scene when they see each other for the first time. And I want to read it. But honestly, me reading it doesn't do it justice. So I'd like to Selene a scene. Can Can we play My Heart Will Go On from the theme song from Titanic behind this? and let it swell. Let's just try this. Look at, we're gonna put it on screen. Just get ready. Mogul Max, can you kick my music off for me? Listen. Then Rebecca and her young woman arose, and you can make it louder, and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca, and he went on his way. Isaac had returned from Behir Lahai and he was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes and saw. She saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man? Walking in the field to meet us, the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rebecca. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death and seen. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but that's how the Hebrew reads, right? When I read it, I just hear Celine, and I'm like, come on, girl. Come on. Let's go. 
Let's go. Hold on to me, Jack. Here we go, right? So, hey, here's the thing. This is the third big thing I want you guys to pick up. By the way, give yourself a round of applause. You just read through 67 verses of the Bible. Some of you have maybe not read the Bible that much in your life. You guys are all top scholars, right? Shout out. Here's the third big idea I want you guys to write down. Is this. Isaac and Rebecca's entire engagement consisted of asking, who is that? That's it. That's their entire engagement. He's out there meditating on the Negev, the southern part of, and he's just like, who's that? And she kind of gets off her camel. She's like, who's that? And they walk towards each other. And this, this is like no joke. This is the next 57 minutes of their relationship. Oh, okay. Would you like to go in my tent? Sure. Okay. And they consummate the marriage, and he's comforting his mother's death, right? Like, within the span of an hour, it's like, who are you? And then he's, like, waking up in bed. He's like, hey, how are you, right? That's, that's it, right? That's their whole engagement. Who is that? Oh, I don't know. Let's get married. There we go, right? Okay, here's something, jokes aside, here's something more important. And it's the, one, it's the thing I want you guys to pick up on. It's this. You are ready to become engaged when you have asked when you have asked and sufficiently answered the question, uh, who is this person? And I'm sorry, that's a typo. It should read this. You're ready to become engaged when you have sufficiently answered the question, who is this person? Asking who is that is actually a really important question. Who is that? Who, who really is this person? And engagement, I want you guys to understand, engagement is, is really, you're ready to move into it when you've sufficiently answered the question, do I know this person? Who is it? Who are they at their core? And so for the remainder of the evening, what I want to do is I want us to address some of the sub-questions we can ask in the process of dating so we can sufficiently answer the question of who is it that we've been dating and are they the person, the kind of person we should get married to. So let's review very quickly what we learned about dating. We said last week, when you're dating, you need wisdom to evaluate. And you need wisdom to evaluate three C's in particular. Uh, and there, you can write them down, the first three C's there. In dating, and thinking through dating, you should ask, do we, does, he, does he, does she, is there character? Number two, is there chemistry? And number three, there's capacity, or character, capacity, and chemistry. Okay? You need the three C's in dating. Character, capacity, chemistry, character. Do they have consistent uh, moral character? Is their internal framework consistent? Are they the same person in public and in private? Is that character consistent? Is it modeled after the character of Christ? Is this going on in their life? Capacity. Are we equally yoked? Are, are we at the same level? Do we think the same? Are we interested in the same kinds of things? Are we both kind of smart people or are we both really smart people or are we not really smart people we need to be equally yoked there in terms of our capacity am i more ambitious than he is is she more ambitious than i am what, like what what gives capacity is important and finally chemistry chemistry hey is there a spark when i see you do i hear the heart my heart will go on and on by celine dion playing in the background right do i get the tingles i've heard different people use this phrase this week do i get twitter pated right you guys seen this twitter pated from from like uh, Bambi, Thumper gets Twitter pated and does this thing here, right? Like his heart is fluttering. I, I heard someone mention it this week. Ben Hartle and I were hanging out and he just talked about this idea of being like a Twitter patient. And I, I literally get on my phone and Googling, like, is there some new app in Twitter called Twitter pated? Like, is that, is that, no, it's like coming from Bambi, right? It's just so, right? are you someone who's like, ah, right? Chemistry, it's not everything, it's not the only thing. It's something, though, right? And, and it has to be there. You need this in dating. You need to constantly evaluate, is this something that's happening or is there no chemistry, right? And if any of these three C's isn't there, you got to break up. This is not for you, right? If in the process of dating, you don't have those three C's, one of those three C's is missing, break up. you got to have all three C's if you're going to sustain dating. But let's say you've been dating for a while, all three C's are covered, there are two extra C's. I think Genesis 24 and the whole of Scripture calls us to think through as we're trying to assess who this person is and moving towards engagement. And here they are. Number one, you need community approval. You need community approval. In your community, do they sign off on this person? I like this person. Just imagine, I'm bringing this person around on my friends. There's chemistry, there's character, there's capacity. We're equally yoked. This is all working. What do you think? And if your community just goes, nope, it's out. 
okay? You go, all right, thanks for playing. Time to jettison this relationship. Because your community knows you, and your community can protect your blind side. Your community sees when you're not thinking through everything. Your community pokes holes in things. Your community protects you. Your community loves you. They know you in all your seasons. They know when you're lying to yourself. Your community can speak honestly towards you, okay? And so if you don't get community buy-in, that's a, that's a deal breaker, okay? Break up with her. Break up with him. It's done, okay? Or maybe the community says, I just, I don't see it. We need more time to see if it's there, okay? But community has to be on board. Who's in your community? It's the people in your church. It's the people in your life group. It's your pastor. It's your pastors. It's your ministry leaders, okay? It's people you know really well who know you really well. It's your parents. It's maybe your uncle and your aunt if they're really close with you. It's leaders, right? It's just people around you that know you really well and can give you honest feedback about yourself and about your life and about your choices and about your potential mate, okay? Now, the question comes up, what about my non-Christian parents? This was my situation, right? What about my non-Christian parents? Should I consider them in the community? And here's my answer. Here's what I think. I think yes, even your non-Christian parents. Even your non-Christian mom and dad. When I was, um, when I was thinking about getting engaged to Natalie, uh, I think right before I broke up with her because I was so in love with her, right? Uh, one of those things. It was complicated. It was, it was complicated before Facebook. Um, uh, I remember um, my dad... As soon as we had started dating, I told my dad I liked this girl. I was like, hey, man, I'm thinking she could be marriage material. My dad wasn't a Christian at the time. He later became a Christian. Uh, my dad, at the time, he goes, well, you know, Doug, there's a surefire way to know if kind of you're compatible. And I was like, oh, really cool. What is it, Dad? He's like, you need to sleep together. And I was like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, you need to have sex. And I was like, uh, no, no, I'm not going to have sex until we get married. And my dad tells me this, son, I never buy a pair of shoes unless I try it on first. And I went, whoa, misogyny aside, like, wow, this is, oh my goodness, this is terrible advice. And this was the advice that my dad had been given and kind of grew up in. And so he was just telling me, he said, well, son, you know, you're just going to have to go have sex with her and then you're going to know. And I was like, this is terrible advice. So I remember thinking through wanting to marry Natalie now. And I was like, I am not going to go to my dad for advice. He gives terrible advice. Uh, he, his life at that point was kind of a train wreck. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to him. I should not consider him. I'm thinking about everybody else, but not my dad. And Christmas, right before we got engaged, Natalie came from Oklahoma to my house in East Texas. And I remember I was in one of those moods. I was just, it was Christmas, I was really moody and weird and distant and just not sure how I felt about things. And so Natalie came, spent, a, I think, a couple of nights with us. And then she was getting ready to go back to Oklahoma that day and had to drive north to go to Oklahoma. And I remember I'm just moody and so I'm sitting on the couch and she goes, okay, bye. And I went, bye. And she like walked out the door and was getting ready, like, pulled her luggage, got ready to like put it into her car. And I'm just sitting in there like, you know, watching TV. Uh, I think Duke was playing basketball and I was like, oh cool, Duke is on. So I'm just like watching and my dad, my dad, my pagan dad comes in the room and he goes, where's Natalie? I said, uh, she just walked out the door. And he goes, is she coming back? I was like, no, she's going home. And my dad, pagan and all, goes, get your blankety blank up and get out there and give her a hug and tell her you love her and tell her goodbye. No son of mine is going to have such poor character. And I went, what? Like, what? I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, we'll talk about this later. Just get out. So I walk out. And I'm like, Natalie, I'm sorry. I'm in a real weird mood. Let me help you put this in your trunk. And I give her a hug. And I was like, I'm sorry. I love you. I should have walked you out to your car. I just, I'm in a bunk or whatever. Will you forgive me? Yeah, you'll forgive me. Okay, I love you. Okay. Gets in the car and goes. And I walk back in. I'm like, dad, like, what is going on here? Like, where is this wisdom coming from? Are you reading a book? Like, have you been talking to Christians? Are they talking to you? And he was like, Doug, it's just a basic rule. If you love somebody, you walk them out the door and you tell them bye. And I was like, light bulb. Oh, okay. So my dad may be kind of terrible and mor morally, but he has some good wisdom there. And so I had to work really hard to even hear the good things he had to say when it came to marriage. And so I would just tell you this, your parents may be terrible human beings, they may not be Christians, they may not agree with things. In fact, you may go to them and say, hey, I'm thinking about marrying so-and-so, and they may go, oh, I don't like him. I don't like him because he's a Christian. And you can go, okay, so your whole problem is that I'm a Christian and he's a Christian. Yeah, so their problem isn't with him, their problem is with Christianity, and you go, okay, cool. I think that's translated into Christian terms, up and okay, that's a sign of approval, okay? That, that's how that works. But, but here's the thing, parents... 
parents can typically think through and they can see with you chemistry and capacity and character, okay? And so if your non-Christian parents go, there's a chemistry issue there and you don't see it, but it's coming down the road. And let me just tell you, it's coming. I mean, your parents know you, okay? They changed your dirty diapers and they've seen you kind of naked and at your worst, right? They've been in a bed with you crying at night. Like they are in the deepest community with you. They know you. You, you should let them have weight, even if they're non-Christians. Now, if they're non-Christians, just take their advice to your pastor and go, what do you think, and have him translate. But for the most part, even them, in your community, you need to have sign-off before moving towards engagement. That's the fourth C. Here's the fifth C. Fifth C is career plan. Abraham went to his community to find a wife. Abraham brought a lot of goods with him, not because he's trying to show off, because he's trying to communicate something. Hey, I'm going to take care of her. You can trust her with me. I'm going to provide for her. And what we would call or talk about today is we got to have some kind of provision plan or some kind of care plan or some kind of career plan. And so if you're thinking about getting married before you ever get married, you got to know that you can provide for one another. Husbands, you can provide for your wife, or in some cases, wives, you can provide for your husbands. But there's got to be a career plan there that's, that's set that says, we're going to be able to make it. I, I told this last week, there's a famous eagle song. When we're hungry, love will keep us alive, right? Which has never worked ever, 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 right? Um, I, I was uh, hanging out with my, my homie Chris the other day, and we were going to eat this burger joint. We're walking in. And there's this couple, and they're kind of dirty, but they're young, and they're like pretty, but they're dirty, and you can tell they maybe spent the night on the street, and they're just arguing passionately, and you can tell they're arguing about money. And you can kind of just see that story as we're walking in, they walk past us, they're kind of walking in, and, um, and we're both just trying to avoid them because it's making a social scene, and they kind of walk off, and we go inside. And you can just see what happened, like they were, uh, earlier in the year, they were young and in love and they had chemistry, and that was it, and they rushed into a physical relationship, and they like got together, and they probably had uh, a place to stay for a while, but then money ran out because he wasn't working, because she wasn't working, and now they've been moved out of the situation, and now they're homeless, and they need money, and the finances are stressing them, and guess what? Love is not keeping them alive, right? Love's not even keeping them together. Uh, it's, it's eroding everything they have together, not having a plan, and they're angry, and they're frustrated, and they're bitter. And so here's the thing. You get married without a career plan, and but I love her, but I love him. Guess what? When you can't pay rent, and when you can't keep utilities on, and when sometimes I don't work two or three jobs, then bitterness seeps in, then chemistry goes away, okay? And so you got to have a career plan. And when I say career plan, I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. It is not a hobby. I don't mean a wish. I don't mean a dream. And I don't mean a hope, Okay? I mean a plan, not a hobby, a plan. I am going to do this and then this, and in this month's time, I'm going to do this, and we're going to earn this much money, and I have a budget, and here's how it's going to move forward, and here's how I'm going to support your lifestyle. No matter how maintenance or low maintenance you are, I have a plan in place. And listen, uh, ladies, if the guy doesn't have a plan in place, that's a deal breaker, okay? Okay. Uh, Fellas, if she doesn't have a plan in place, that's a deal breaker. And let me talk about specifically how this tends to play out. And it doesn't have to play out this way, but it tends to play out this way. Typically, when a man and a woman come together, especially if that woman wants to have children, biologically or adoptive, um, typically what happens for a variety of biological and social and other reasons is that the woman will, whatever her career is, it will greatly diminish in the man's career or means of earning money will have to increase to support the whole of the family while the woman stays at home and raises the kids either for a small amount of time or for the remainder of her kids needs to be taken care of and then maybe after kids are gone then they then she can go back to work in a career or something like that um so uh, I, I see this uh, all the time i had friends they're both surgeons right and she worked and he worked and um she was a like a much better surgeon than him for a variety of reasons but they both made a lot of money and so she just worked really hard for like 10 years or like five years. And then she, once she wanted to start having kids, she like stayed home and he was only a surgeon and he supported them. And then that was kind of it. She was done. She would maybe go in every so often and do general practice or whatever she did. But that was the way they did things. And they did that because uh, they wanted to breastfeed and the, the husband couldn't breastfeed, right? And uh, she, could, she could pump and she could dump and he could feed, but 
girls are smarter than boys, right? Even surgeons, okay? And boys are just like, what do I do with this bottle? Do I just like hold it up in the air? Like the baby's here. How do I put this milk in the mouth? I don't know, right? Women are smart and they're like, this is how you do it, right? And so for a variety of reasons, she needed to stay at home and they just had to arrange that. Well, just think that. That's, that's a fairly 90% certain that's gonna be your arrangement. Ladies, if you're in a relationship with a guy and if he doesn't have a career plan, here's what you're thinking. I have to have the pressure of raising these kids and I have to have the pressure, uh, pl- uh, pressure of, of having a career to support us and what is he doing all day? Because he's not helping with the dishes and he's not helping with the kids. Why am I doing everything? That's the quickest way to choke out any kind of chemistry that you have, right? If he doesn't have a career plan. Let me also just say this, okay? Just because I can talk about this forever. Let me tell you about me and Natalie when we first got married. Because here is what I told her dad. I said, hey, I want to be a pastor. And he was like, okay. Uh, and he was like, you know my daughter has to eat, right? And I was like, I'm aware of this. Uh, I know she needs to eat and she needs a house and she needs a clothing allowance because she's pretty and she needs clothing, right? Um, so I, I said, hey, here's, here's my plan, okay? When we get married, I'm gonna stay in school full-time. I'll work part-time, but she'll work full-time and she'll support us for the first three years of seminary. Um, but after that, I'll get a job and then she can work and then when she wants to have kids, she can stay at home and I'll support us. So I just want you to know, here's how this is gonna work. Three years, I'm gonna work part-time, I'm gonna make this much money and as soon as I'm done with seminary, I'll go get a full-time job and I'll support her. And if at any point in that process, if it looks like she doesn't wanna work or something's not working out, I will quit seminary, I'll get another job, I'll go to seminary part-time and I'll make that happen. I'll incur all of that risk, but for a short amount of time, she'll work to support our family until such a time as we can make that exchange, okay? This tends to happen with like uh, pastors, lawyers, doctors, these kind of like high-intensity graduate programs, right? The, the wife, if this is the case, tends to work, the husband's in school, and then there's a great switcheroo at some point. Well, about halfway through seminary, I was like, you know what? I think God wants me to go get a PhD. So that's going to be another four to five years of education. So again, I'm going to my father and mother-in-law and going, okay, here's, here's the plan. Um, we're going to be okay. Natalie's going to work for another two to three years. I'm going to get done with coursework, and as soon as I'm done with coursework, I will then get a full-time job, and I'll be able to support her while I'm finishing up my PhD, and she can work or she can stay at home with kids, either or, but that's the plan. So I just said, Natalie, just two more years if you can do this, right? But I told Natalie, it's not your burden to provide. It's our burden together to, to kind of come up with provision, and it's ultimately